with the last day of the year, December 31st, 2020, which means welcome to the uh, annual meeting of the John Birch Society. <laughs> um, we are we are here, of course, to answer uh, the question on everybody's mind, which is, is MMT real? Um, <laughs> I hope I hope that we can uh, perhaps get to the bottom of this by by the end of today's episode. Yeah, Nathan's here to tell us how it's not real today. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize that you guys had become part of the current affairs extended universe. <laughs> yeah, we're now a MMT hostile podcast, and every single episode that we're doing will be about proving one how coronavirus isn't real, but also how MMT <laughs> made COVID. Yeah. I mean, you know the left media ecosystem. We're all part of like the same network of uh, shell companies created by the CIA, right? So, yeah, I mean, we, got, yeah. we got our uh, letter in the mail that said it's our turn to switch and pivot to crypto fast. We've been so too generous. Orders. We've been too generous to modern modern monetary theory on this podcast. Yeah, so you, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're devoting yourself to building up the population's herd immunity against both the coronavirus <laughs> and MMT. Right. Yeah, we get bored here at Langley, so, you know, we have to do something to keep ourselves occupied. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Death Panel. Today we have a fan favorite guest back, uh, way overdue. Please welcome back to the show, Nathan Tankus of the Notes on, a, on the Crisis Substack. Thank you for having me. It's nice to have you back. Always good to have good friends back. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't like I don't like New Year's at all, but this is a fitting way to round it out. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, does this count as a party now? Because there, are, <laughs> I don't know. Um, in all realness, though, uh, the first time we had you on was quite a while ago. We were talking about the CARES Act, the effects of the CARES Act. And here we are, as we've been joking, at the end of the year. And we've got a new stimulus bill that has passed Congress. And I think it's um, there are so many different aspects of the bill other than the bill itself, which are like up for discussion right now. But I feel like just for context sake it would be good to get into what actually the bill is and what's going on i think what the biggest implication is just is just what's is more just what's not in the legislation than what is um so as you know mm-hmm. saying, there's no fiscal local support state uh, state and local general support there's like we're giving state and local governments 25 billion dollars for you know undefined or underdefined rental assistance um, and then, and then there's like obviously money related to the healthcare components, but there is no general state and local aid, which you know means you know as you guys have talked about, you know we're continuing the grindhouse process of reo- of premature reopenings and under adjustment to uh, the needs of suppressing transmission because you know it's it's quote unquote unaffordable for state and local governments to do so. Um, so I think you know that's more than anything else what's not in legislation because you know it's a it's quote unquote a blue state bailout, um, and you know all, all that sort all all sort of state and local fiscal politics has been defined by national partisanship. I think that that's that's a major that that's a major component of uh, uh, 
of it. And then everything else is just sort of like, um, you know, what each side quote unquote wants. So like, you know, the, the small business relief, the, the P, the PPP loans, uh, forgivable loans are like seen as like a Republican thing, you know, coming out of, uh, out of Rubio's office. So, you know, we're balancing that with, uh, expansions and unemployment insurance on the quote-unquote Democrat side. And then, you know, as I'm sure we'll talk about a lot more, then there's these checks in the middle that uh, <laughs> by, uh, by, by, popular, uh, by popular outrage become, uh, become a component of the bill. Um, but, it, you know, it's very, very bare bones. I mean, you know, there's good stuff in there. Like, you know, I don't want to sneeze at specific provisions. I think the bump up on SNAP is important and, and really matters. Um, uh, through June, but like, you know, once we're getting to that point, in terms of the kind of dollar amounts Congress can throw around, we're talking about relatively small bones, this stuff. I mean, I feel like what we, what we keep running into is that there's only ever a very short term. You know, we talked about this in our episode earlier this week with Abby and Justin, that COVID is not like an acute crisis, but it's being uh, treated as if it is going to be over any day now. And I feel like that's just been sort of the underlying theme of how we are trying to to fix some of the fiscal problems that are arising because there is a virus spreading unchecked. Is there anything in this that like that breaks out of that really temporary band-aid because I, I haven't seen much, to be honest. There's a lot of sort of just getting us through the next couple of months and we're just going to keep running into the same problem over and over again. No, I mean, it's a short term. I mean, even like, you know, as I, as I plugged in the, in the, in the Bloomberg TV interview, like even president elect Biden called the, the vaccine uh, money, like a down payment on, on vaccinating <laughs> the population, you know? Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, telling that like you know not even he could like really sell sell that stuff and you know we're, we're you know obviously there's all everything going on right now with the with the vaccine that is driving a lot of people absolutely insane um mm-hmm. the, the 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 big issue is that so much about fiscal policy is like like congress is like this little kid who keeps on doing something and then looks back to the adults to see how they're reacting and the adults are like economic forecasters and like uh, like economists and so like they do like you know did we do a good job and then they look and the forecasters and like you know the forecasters bump up their their third quarter or fourth quarter projections uh and then and and they give them a thumbs up it's like you did such a good job buddy you did such a good job And I think that I think that's what's going on. And and, and you know what? The forecasters are right. The for, I think the forecasters are right. And this is something I wanted to like get across in my most recent newsletter. With this second fiscal package, you know, we're probably not in the long term. You know, you know, even with delays in uh, on the vaccine, we're probably not anymore talking about a depression. Um, like in in terms of like you know being worried about this being a depression for five or six years, I think there's going to be tons of deaths, tons of illness, tons of injury, tons of of disability, tons like tons of evictions. Um, but I think we're we're out of the of the the depression uh, element of this with the second package, and I think that is the most dangerous thing of all because now. Like we're mm-hmm. really not tied, you know, the state of the economy to the state of health. Like, you know, it's it's yeah. you're 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 getting to the point where, you know, 
um, and, and and financial markets are, and, and financial commentators and such are, are very primed to just skip ahead. They're mm-hmm. they're not looking at what's going on. They're you know they're looking at what is the implications of what's going on for a year or two now down the line. And with vaccines vaccines on the table, even with delays in distribution and such, and and, and you know problems. Um, you know, their, their imagination always just jumps to like, okay, then what's that post-crisis look like? What does the, the services boom that happens when people can finally, you know, buy, you know, purchase services? And, and, you know, all that stuff is right, I think, actually. Like, I think we are with the second fiscal package, you know, at, at a, a point where you will get that services boom and then you'll have like a lot of, up, uh, of, of middle income, upper middle income and, and rich households, you know, that, that balance sheets are looking very good and, you know, are ready, are ready to burn their money on things. Um, mm-hmm. And like, you know, as I was talking about, you know, in a highly unequal society where uh, unemployment, where employment levels have recovered for like middle income and high income people, um, but you're still down like 20% uh, employment level for low-income people. Well, low-income people in a highly unequal society are just a small percentage of total household income. So, you know, with with fiscal policy, with boosting fiscal policy, um, you know, you can have a high-demand economy essentially without them. Like, you need them to, you need to, you'll eventually pull them back into work, but you, you don't need their spending power. Um, and, you know, especially if you get these boosts of unemployment insurance here and there, which you know get them to decent income replacement level. So I mean I think we're we're we're, we're sort of getting to that point where where the deaths and the illness and 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 and, and everything like doesn't have this this macroeconomic implication, which is mm-hmm. you know which makes things makes the system even more tolerant of um, you know four thousand deaths a day. <laughs> well, it strikes me as funny because I think one of the like one of the things that we were uh, kind of joking or tossing around as an idea was uh, the idea of kind of looking back, (laughs) trying to do some sort of retrospective look back at 2020, even though I know that pretty much no one in the world actually really wants to do that right now. And one (laughs) of the ways actually that we can do it ironically is by looking at the disastrous, uh, some of the disastrous consequences of uh, things like the CARES Act um, and the, you know, there's the the way that we've handled this pandemic over the last year. Um, For instance, like sort of, as you're saying, I think no one could argue that you know clearly the the well-off have continued to do quite well over the last year and you know have seen their economic conditions improve um you know you had you had even like uh another prominent substack uh writer matthew iglesias uh, (laughs) making that point quite prominently as like well you know it's really not that bad for people out there most people who own homes you know, I'm people who own great. homes are doing great. Yeah, exactly. For example, me, but, I'm not ordering takeout. I'm saving so much money because I'm not getting a latte every day. It's fantastic. But um, <laughs> and in that sense, I was kind of thinking it's, you know, I, I, you know, you can say, oh, maybe we're out of this like macroeconomic crisis moment or this sort of like a de- uh, depression crisis moment from a from a uh, from a certain standpoint. But, you know, as, as you're saying, I think all of these people who are who are focusing on things like the economy, for example, are saying like, oh, well, the, you know, the vaccines have come as this, you know, like blessing or something. Um, whereas, you know, one of the reasons that we as we've pointed out on the show, one of the reasons that we have like gotten to gotten back data on these vaccines so quickly is because um, spread was so completely unchecked in the United States. Um, and on top of it, there are still 
many factors that we don't know about these one like we we've talked a lot about the vaccines here but one of the things that we have kept repeating which i really appreciate that you nathan have also repeated on your um on uh, notes on the crises uh, a lot is the the fact that for instance you know we don't know whether the vaccines uh, protect from infection in addition to disease we also don't know how long any immunity lasts mm-hmm. on these so it's interesting because it does seem to me very much like and you know it it may be the case that the answers to those questions are satisfactory right um but if they're not i think that the like the economic prescriptions being made here are not like are completely uh in insufficient really for actually dealing with the scenario that could that could be looming like everyone's just assuming that that this is going to take care of it, right? That like life right. will return to normal at some point in 2021. Right. It's like take it's it's like that the thing that is up for question is the time before we get there or the exact method, but that getting there is a sure bet. And that is actually completely counter to um, the data that we have, which is just that the real answer is we have no idea what we're working with long term. And it would be kind of nice to see you know, the legislative arm of the U.S. government respond to that question of we don't know and we need to plan for the future. We need to plan for um, potentially this lasting a lot more than 2021 even. And that's just not even conceptually on the table yeah. right now. I, I guess my my worry is what if it does? Like, not in the sense of, right, you know, yeah. that, that the mm. vaccine distribution is sufficient, not in the sense of that, like, we're, you know, we're, we're actually doing what we need to do to avoid um, the most vulnerable dying of coronavirus. But what if, you know, you get enough people who, you know, get their, get their vaccine, you start distributing vaccine to the, you know, the prime age people who finally yeah. can get their chance to get back to work. And what if, you know, stiff upper lip, you know, we just get able with the vaccine able to keep deaths down, quote unquote down to 4,000 acceptable. Yeah. yeah four, the 4,000 a day, you know, okay, we can get back to work and we're having the same death rate that we're having before the death rate hasn't increased at all. So right. like, it's okay, actually. Um, and so what and what if things get back to normal and, you know, we reopen Vegas and, you know, and all this <laughs> and, and, and all this stuff. Uh, and, and what if like the uh, what if the death, the deaths just which already been normalized, just become such a normalized part that, you know, mm-hmm. that that, you know, we basically almost explicitly go to herd immunity, but it's like herd immunity. It's like vaccine herd immunity. So it's good. And. Where, right. Yeah, and like that—that that is really where my my mind has gone. Is that you know the fiscal packages are enough to keep the economy going, to you know keep demand up, um, and you know that plus vaccine, even you know screwed up vaccine distribution. What if we just sort of just start getting to a point where like a bunch of people are dying, but you know. Yeah, it's like lost generation well, shit. I yeah. mean, even more lost generation shit than we're already yeah. experiencing. Not to be a bummer, but from my perspective and my particular experience of healthcare, and um, you know being told that I'm trashed by the federal government, that seems like the likely case at this point and has for a long time. And it just seems like we're getting one step closer to that. Every time the death numbers get, you know, 500 higher, we hit a new record. And I feel like just for context sake it would be good to get into the concept of fiscal cliffication. Yeah, it's it's exactly uh, the 
ways that a writer would invent to keep on writing about in his newsletter and uh, um, and, and uh, <laughs> not something that was uh, coined on on, on recording uh, any sort of uh, audio or visual <laughs> medium. Yeah, so for maybe uh, those who might be new to your work, because I know you've been on the show a couple times now and you are a big deal uh, in general, <laughs> but there are definitely people who are listening to this who might not be familiar with your work. So do you think you could just like walk us through in layman's terms what exactly you mean by... Uh, by this? Yeah, so fiscal clarification uh, is the concept that I've been like framing, talking about the, po- the politics of our fiscal bills. You know, the term comes from the 2010 2011 time period where there was a so called fiscal cliff, where there was built in these automatic uh, cuts and uh, uh, spending cuts and, and tax increases that were built in in passing a uh, appropriations bill, I believe it was appropriations bill, or like a temporary extension so that people would really have a strong incentive to come to a grand bargain um, later on. And, you know, we've had these fights over debt ceilings, um, which have, you know, taken along, along some of the same tenor, but, but nonetheless, not all of our fiscal policy was built in around uh, these, these kind of things, even as the these uh, these kind of quote unquote crises became more and more recurrent, and in this year that has really intensified. We're basically passing any spending legislation is tied to this process of fiscal cliffication, where you have you know this deadlock between the two parties, and then circum it's only circumstance that forces them to finally come together. And, you know when you know. And, and you know, may, you might think, well, is this is this really an accurate concept when we've already passed two large bills in 2020? And you know, in some mm-hmm. bigger picture, that's like you know progress that's getting things done in Washington. But you know, as we've talked about, um, you know, unemployment in the expanded unemployment insurance benefits expired in July. Yeah. So right. they expired in July, and we're getting a bill at the end of December um, <laughs> that is basically only happening because there is two Georgia runoff Senate elections. <laughs> um, like, you know, I, as I joked on Twitter, like, you know, where is that in, in, in your political business cycle model? Um, <laughs> and the, the, the core issue is that so much of our fiscal politics and policies are being determined in these high pressure moments where you have to pass everything or nothing. You know, you basically need the temperature to go up to where you finally get to a point where both parties have have an incentive to do a deal. Obviously, much more so on the Republican side. You know, obviously intransigence, especially around spending more money, um, especially on something that's going to help someone. But but nonetheless, like you know, it, it really is both sides being pushed by circumstance to come together and. The idea being that this is just what all of our fiscal policy is going to be about. This isn't some unique part of the crisis. We're going to be at fiscal clarification, you know, for the next decade until um, or, or unless one party gets such a dominant position that they're able to just decide fiscal policy on their own and are more, most importantly, are willing to decide fiscal policy on their own without quote unquote bipartisanship. Mm-hmm. And and to be clear, like this is a choice. This is something that's writ- literally written into the legislation. Uh, you could have had unemployment benefits that went on in perpetuity or were pegged to the condition of the economy. 
Uh, and you could have had a lot of other policies that were designed like that. But Congress set it up so that they would have to face this crisis, right? Yes, definitely. Uh, 100%. That's, that's how this works. Um, it's, it's less extreme than the original fiscal cliff, which the original fiscal cliff was nothing really about the state of the economy. It's not, you know, they didn't care about unemployment insurance at all back then. I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, as frustrating as I would get sometimes, you know. We've managed to politicize uh, unemployment insurance much more so than it was during the Great Recession. Um, they built, they you know, constructed their own cliff uh, where they built in these not just that the, that the spending would expire, but like actively you would have spending cuts and tax increases because of it. I mean, it's the embodiment of the um, idea that politicians won't act unless their hands are tied. That someone has to be pushed to the point where they uh, are forced to act, right? And that there's no justification for making some sort of like generous preemptive intervention in order to uh, maybe alleviate problems before they get exacerbated. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, that, that's exactly it. Like we, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't preemptively deal with anything. We, we, we come in months, years, decades after the fact and try to, you know, half-heartedly clean up messes. And of course, you know, as we'll probably get into more, they're not really dealing with state and local government issues at all, which have been the core of the of the death drive of this crisis. Yeah. I mean, something I wanted to ask you about, Nathan, is so we, as we said, this is sort of artificial. Uh, Congress has sort of set this up to happen. Everyone is sort of waiting, sitting on their hands, waiting for Congress to swoop in and, and sort of save the day even when it's like very unlikely that that's going to happen. And then what they end up producing is super inadequate. But this is avoidable, right? It is a choice. There are people out there who have been talking about automatic stabilizers for a long time. And, and you know, not just you, but a lot of people. And so the question always for me is like, why is Congress so allergic to that idea? And like the common explanation I've heard of that is that you know Congress likes the members of Congress like the opportunity to come in later and save the day, uh, you know whether it's like Medicare payments or whatever. Like they like to set up things that are are fucked up so that they can later come in and say like, oh yeah, we we cleaned up the, the fucked up thing. But th that's like an unsatisfying explanation to me because it's not as if you can't claim credit when things go into effect automatically, like if, if unemployment like you know, is extended. You can still clear, clearly claim credit for that. But like, what's your best guess as to like why uh, congressional leaders who engage in these negotiations are so allergic to what are, I think, pretty objectively better uh, policy, like fiscal policy ideas? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think I think that narrative is definitely missing something because, you know, of course, we have all sorts of legislation that have automatic components that people nonetheless take credit for, you know. You, you fall into poverty and you get Medicaid or you your income falls and you get a bigger Obamacare subsidy that that has some automaticity to it and absolutely is you know some Democrats somewhere are gonna take credit for that so I, I'm I, I don't find that narrative satisfying either I think on the I think I think the answer is that I would somewhat disagree with your your characterization I think um, automatic stabilizers aren't really a thing that people have been talking about in the sense of like a mainstream policy conversation for a long time. It's very, very, you know, it's, it's for, from, for mainstream policy circles, it's a very, very recent phenomenon. 
um, that 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 is is kind of new. Um, the you know fiscal you know, strengthening automatic fiscal stabilizers was nowhere in the two thousands, and after the great financial crisis, it was nowhere. Um, slowly but surely, basically like on the timeline of the sl- of the achingly slow recovery, these ideas started to get a little bit of traction. And they've especially, and, and but they've really built up more, less so because of that crisis, and more because of the Trump years. You know, Trump years obviously you're you're less policy relevant if you're in a policy think tank because you're not you know you're not actually influencing legislation. Um, mm-hmm. And you, all, meanwhile, they're seeing how the economy is getting stronger, and interest rates aren't quote unquote normalizing like they might have expected. You know, 2010, 2011, 2012. Um, and plus, you know, Trump's in office, so you suddenly don't trust discretionary policy. Um, in that context, there's been this slow movement, but it's been very slow towards taking automatic stabilizers more seriously. You know, what I call autonomous stabilizers, these automatic trigger policies, not just simply, you know, um, marginal tax rates or unemployment insurance or and such. Um, which expand, you know, which expand without any administrative change uh, on the part of the administrative agency. Um, and like, you know, for example, the, the book Recession Ready, which I would say is the landmark, uh, we're finally taking automatic stabilizers seriously from think tanks. It was, you know, I think it's a joint, uh, Washington Center for Equitable Growth, uh, Brookings Institution joint. That came out, I, I, I want to say like February of 2019. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, so that's that's super recent in terms of time, and that's the landmark. People are starting to take automatic stabilizers seriously, and that's a bit, that, you know that that is thirteen months from the crisis. So like we can count in months, not in years, in terms of you know automatic stabilizer ideas starting to have some influence in Washington. And you know I think I really think we were probably on on the precipice of more serious legislation around automatic stabilizers this year. I mean maybe not. Obviously, not something that 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 passed and was signed into law, but you know something that was going to pass the House. Like, I think that probably in absence of the pandemic, um, that that would have been like a, a spring thing that uh, Congress was pushing for, um, and it just you know <laughs> that it just got swallowed up by the by the pandemic. Um, and then, of course, you know Pelosi's initial response once the pandemic got going was suddenly we can't <laughs> we can't do. Uh, fiscal stabilizers because they're going to get such a high CBO score. God, yeah. (laughs) I think what we are facing in the next couple of months is obviously going to be a long debate over targeting, too, because that seems to be the way of trying to, like, attempt to create the perception that there is a plan to address the inequity that's going on, a plan to address the fact that people are having a really hard time. And so we have this like big discussion over who deserves to be helped right now, which I think is particularly problematic going into um, what's going to be a pretty long winter, regardless of who's in federal office. So in terms of like this $600 check situation, what exactly is going on right now? Maybe we have a lot of listeners in Europe who have been very confused about what the deal is. Do you think we could all just like break down sort of what is going on with this second stimulus check that's supposed to be coming out? Yeah. Uh, 
Can Sorry. we just place that? Can we just post that over and over? And <laughs> just, uh... Yeah. Here, here's my my most recent take is that uh, Mitch McConnell is actually a, an industry shill for uh, console gaming, and that <laughs> he is afraid, or he he's trying to keep us all from from building two thousand dollar gaming rigs. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, so. I think the, the I think I sort of just want to do almost like the prehistory of the checks yeah. because I think this has sort of gotten buried now. But the prehistory is that the original package did not have any uh, stimulus checks at all or, or right. economic pay, uh, payment checks at all. There was no checks. Um, I think it was like um, the vaccine money got up to I think w- like what ended vaccine money was hi- was higher. I think unemployment was expanded expanded for longer. Mm-hmm. I think it was like sixteen weeks rather than the like eleven weeks of the package. Um, yeah. And in 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 that context, you know, there you know, was an outrage, and they you know the original wave of outrage is like they gave blah blah blah, and so many people have become billionaires, and all you got was twelve hundred dollars. Um, which you know, of course, for for people who see the revolutionary potential in the $600 a week, which is, you know, an extraordinary change to the American welfare state um, and increase in, in its generosity. That kind of rhetoric was very frustrating, at least, at least at the time was it's just sort of like, you know, no, we, there is this actually really important, good thing that we should be drawing on and, and organizing around. Um, and, you know, that gets sort of erased when everything gets reduced down to a check. Um, and this has been like a lot. And so, so that was the original piece. Um, and so policymakers being who they are, um, n- no one, the, the, that re- the problem was outreach wasn't really about the size of the package because, you know, the people who are focused on checks don't care about anything else because like none of the, these sort of abstract policy questions have been made real to them because, you know, they, they haven't seen how it affects their lives, which is, you know, fair enough. And so, but, in the absence of that, what ended up happening is other things got cut to make room for not $1,200 checks, but $600 checks, because that's the only way you could, quote unquote, make the math work, assuming <laughs> a fixed size of a package. You know, mm-hmm. this, is, this, is, this is how the sausage was made. You know, you want $1,200 checks, we got you $600 checks. Um, and then the outrage became... All they're giving you is six hundred dollars, um, which, like, on one level I understand, but on another level it's very frustrating when it's like um, when when already so many elements that I think are important have been shaped down for this. Um, and but on the other hand, you know, again, there's no reason the package could, couldn't have been bigger to fit them. So we get along, we're passing it, we're talking about uh, the legislation, and of course, you know, the, the biggest inter, uh, internet user, the most, you know low information political commentator, you know, who, 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 who dominates Twitter gets on president Trump, you know, he reads all the criticisms that everyone else does. And, uh, you know, all the viral tweets and he regurgitates them, you know, gets on television and vaguely implies that he's going to veto the bill, but like definitely says he doesn't support the bill. Um, talks about <laughs> all the general appropriations provisions he doesn't like and uh and you know conflates them with specifically the covid package and then also says and the checks are too small uh, <laughs> and you know the check should be two thousand dollars um uh, and the democrats do you know for once actually like manage to take advantage of a political moment 
uh, a little bit and rally around. Yeah, let's do two thousand checks, two thousand dollar checks. Why not? Really, and pushed it. And seeing Bernie is made, making people's life hell by essentially forcing them to stay uh, in Congress over New Year's, which is the you know staying in Congress over the holidays is basically the worst thing you can do to a congressperson <laughs> in the United States. It, it's 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 the equivalent of the death penalty for a congressperson. <laughs> it's it's the highest form of punishment. You know, uh, we're we're soon going to get a, a Republican congressman who are you know going to go in for abolitionist rhetoric but for, for oh. the carceral methods that the democrats are using against them <laughs> they've already gone in on uh bullying rhetoric i think mitch mcconnell is now saying that like, we won't be bullied into yeah you know, <laughs> it's like yeah well, well okay. i mean i'm, I'm yeah, looking for i'm looking space yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, the Democrats should be pursuing transform, uh, transformational justice and not to pursue these kind of cultural <laughs> logics to uh, um, that's that's what I'm holding out for. Yeah. So that and, and so that's basically where we are, is that the checks are the symbol of direct payments. You know, it's funny, you know, people right. talk about them like they're universal payments, but they're actually they are, you know, quote unquote, needs tested. Your household has mm-hmm. to have had, you know, a below, I think it's like seventy two thousand dollars in uh in in gross income uh uh in your twenty nineteen tax returns. So there are people who lost their job and lost their livelihood who are not gonna qualify. Um I'm gonna get a check even though I wouldn't qualify on my twenty twenty tax returns. Right. Um mm-hmm. so but but nonetheless they're like they're it's it means it's not means tested in the sense that you have to supplicate yourself in order to get it, which is really mm-hmm. what in the United States people mean when they're against means testing is, is they don't want to have to humiliate themselves and spend, you know, basically work like a job to acquire benefits. So, yeah, I mean, these checks have just sort of become this symbol of we need to be getting some help. Uh, through this crisis, even with all the other benefits, and I, I, I understand it. Even though it can be frustrating from a, from a policy perspective, when I see these other things, especially unemployment insurance, and of course, you know, also think state and local government aid is so important. But on the other hand, with with with, with such a high level of government failure, um, you know, in a quote, quote, low trust society like our like ours, it's understandable why people want the simplest policy and want. You know, don't want any sort of complicated or targeted help. They just want, you know, th- their focus above all else is is getting a check because, you know, why not? Why shouldn't you get a check um, and, you know, get a sorry, we screwed everything up, you know, $2,000? Well, yeah, I think, Nathan, you make a, a really important point about state and local aid because it's not like a... Even if we were being given $2,000 checks per month going back to March, for example, that still doesn't fix a lot of the problems that we run into from the public health side, which is that states just don't have money right now. So, you know, it's uh, between vaccine distribution and issues with, you know, the fact that all this stuff is just being piled administratively on hospitals and you have of, you know, financial analysts who are saying, well, you know, the real issues, we just need to wait for those vaccines to hit private hands because the fact that they're being handled by the government is why it's not working. It's almost like in people's minds, there's either I get money or the state and local government gets money. And I think that's a really bad, (laughs) bad sign. Maybe we could talk about for a second 
what's actually in here for state and local aid, because that's something we've been talking about for for weeks now is or not weeks, months, is the fact that a lot of the reopening is being driven by the need for tax revenue. Right. And the anxiety that if states close down, you know, you run into issues with having to downgrade the credit rating of the state or you have things like Andrew Cuomo, who's who's creating this elaborate daily song and dance press conference in order to just do the social reproductive process of reminding people that the pandemic is their individual uh, responsibility and that they need to, you know, control living room spread, ignoring the fact that we have um, a poorly funded public health inf- infrastructure and there is virtually no end in sight to the the financial crisis that a lot of states are facing right now. Yeah, I mean, and I would say, you know, the the thing about the bills, it doesn't have much at all. You know, re-looking yeah. at the summary, which is just from Wikipedia, the summary I've used in my piece, which is just from Wikipedia, which is actually, I thought... Yeah, well-written summary. Yeah, the best one I saw. Uh, uh, you know, you know, sometimes they, ha- they have some gems in there. Um, $25 billion, as I said, $25 billion for state and local governments to uh, do rental assistance programs, um, basically at their own, you know, discretion. I mean, you think you have fifty-four billion in there for public yeah, schools, yeah, which K twelve, which is which is big, I think, which is a huge. Uh, if you think about K twelve schools as forms of local government, I guess you could say that that's a you know a big piece of it. And then there's a sort of four billion dollar uh, educational slush fund for governors to kick yeah. around. But but you know, mm-hmm. big, big for like what that has gotten in the past, but also small, small potatoes in, in general. I mean, this, this reminds me of, you know, the conversation about the Aspen Institute that we had, which I'm pretty sure is the, is the last time I, uh, I was on, um, yeah. Yeah. something mm-hmm. I said then, which, you know, I think has really been borne out is as inadequate as what they were putting out seemed, what they were putting out was just so much larger than, um, <laughs> and and so much so much better than uh, what Congress is, is actually talking about. I mean, they were talking about having like automatic, having like autonomous stabilizers for uh, right. K to twelve funding, and like they were talking like I think like like a couple hundred, like two hundred fifty billion dollars or something. Like the, yeah. the amounts that the amounts that they were talking about are so much larger than the amounts Congress is throwing around for the second bill. Um, and even their crap about you know incentivizing work and all that shit about right. doing income replacement, which was you know <laughs> which is unworkable on an IT level. I mean, I think that still ultimately is higher than the three hundred dollars a week. It certainly you know would have been they. they we're put, putting it on an automatic basis and not doing, we're just going to extend it for 11 weeks. So then who knows after, uh, after that. Um, so like, you know, it, it's, I, I think that, that is good contextually to think about, you know, just how small a lot of this stuff is. It's just like, what was Timothy Geithner and <laughs> company wow. uh, willing to put their name to? Towards? Okay. I mean, can- can we talk about that for a little bit, though? Because I, I was struck with a similar sort of, I don't know, if it, was, it was the opposite of deja vu. It was like, wow. It was it was sort of like revised expectations about things that were I viewed as shitty in the past. Uh, so, like, I went back and looked at the Problem Solvers Caucus's, like, slide deck from September on their Definitely. bill. And it struck me in reading how things evolved uh, in the Politico coverage of the Italian takeout dinner at uh, Lisa Murkowski's house or whatever, <laughs> like uh, just how 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 much things were abased even from that, because I think even with the problem solvers, 
I think you still had initially 500 billion for state and local governments, then 250, then 160. And then that just becomes, you know, that, that just like once the size of the package is capped, that's an easy thing for uh, people to throw out because, you know, even though Pelosi kept saying, oh, this is like, a, you know, this is really important to us. And then they would say, like, well, is this a red line for you? And she's like, well, no, no, it's important to us. And it's like obvious <laughs> why it's not a red line. It's like clearly when bad shit happens at the state and local level as a result of these budget cuts, you know, she won't get blamed uh, right. for it. The Democrats in Congress aren't going to get blamed for it. So it's like once you're bargaining on these terms where there's very little access for anybody in the process, it's five or six people in a room. There's, you know, uh, very few of these things can b- are going to become sacred cows. The only sacred cow is like the dollar figure that's at the top of the sheet. And, you know, so, I mean, it's, I think the thing, the interesting sort of point that you make, Nathan, is like suddenly these, it's not like I, I discount the importance of, of the checks. They're obviously, you know, $2,000 is going to matter a lot, but something's happened where at all of these other moments in the process, uh, you know, maybe because of the the complexity of the thing or or whatever, nothing else was seen as like any sort of like red line or like this sort of level of like political opportunity or like mm-hmm. importance. It's just this one thing that happens to be like really, really visible and, you know, a, a kind of like a, a negotiating chip uh, more than anything else that becomes seen as the way that we evaluate policy. And that's and that sort of in a way for the long term and even medium term that that can, that can be kind of dangerous right yeah this i think is my main concern nowadays is you know i don't buy into like traditional political business cycle of like you know politicians just inherently going to overstimulate the economy or any of that crap that's obviously <laughs> farce but i do think that there that we're in a political moment where direct checks are becoming this fiscal technology um, that are that is getting refined and um, increasingly becoming something that people are interested in, and 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 clearly has such a high political salience. Mm-hmm. And you know, as much as you know, we talk about how austere and how you know people don't want to give anything to anybody and give things to the poor, like. The reality is when, when push comes to shove and it really matters, checks are not direct payments, even large direct payments are not a threat to the established order because they're not transformational. They mm-hmm. they can make someone's lives better and you know, maybe, you know, with big enough checks, you know, happening more regularly can like give you some bargaining power at the lower end of the labor market, but like fundamentally, you know, you're not changing things the way that like more organized uh, process of mass spending can really change things, can, can change the production process, can re reorganize social provisioning in a way that is more conflictual with power. Um, you know, we're, it's very difficult for us to do that with our individual funds. Um, and checks become this sort can become this sort of salve where government keeps on failing. And as government failing fails, you go, well, why should you spend money trying to fix problems when you're not going to fix problems anyway? Why don't you just give me a check? And <laughs> right. I understand that instinct, but I think I think it's that instinct is the death of the left. I think the way I would kind of say it is like, 
checks are kind of like this opiate. Um, and I don't mean that in like a negative or pejorative sense or like in like, no, you shouldn't have drugs. You know, a lot of people are in pain. They're in severe chronic pain and, you know, they need a salve for it. And direct mm-hmm. checks can be that salve. But on the other hand, you know, they're not a one size fits all thing that can solve the problems. Like, you know, the problem for people who are having, you know, chronic pains is relieving the other sources of those of of those chronic pains that 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 aren't getting resourced because all that people have access to is the opiate um and and that's the kind of how i'm thinking thinking about it is that this you know it does actually solve a problem it does help it does make things better but it doesn't provide you these kind of these larger social supports and, and systematic change that you need to you know be living a, a, a good life and the more that checks become the center of uh, of our politics, the less that we're able to um, deal with these things, especially for people who need more help, who need more help right. than the direct mm-hmm. payments and give. You know, it, yeah. I think the, you know, especially is something that you know can't deal with disability. It can't deal mm-hmm. with, um, you know, really can't even deal with you know our childcare needs absent of like you know maybe we'll you know do a child allowance on, on top of that, but like fundamentally. Checks can't, you know, they can't, they can't deal with climate change. So I'm not, I don't want to like make this into like, you know, will will the big banks solve? Will breaking up the big <laughs> solve racism thing? Um, but I do think that that there is an element of, you know, as all what we're politically pushing for becomes that it becomes less, it becomes more difficult to imagine systematically changing things and ultimately you know you know the left needs a strong administrative apparatus if it's gonna like fix problems like Mm -hmm. that's that's more than anything else and a politics around you should give us checks because you you don't have a like a functioning administrative apparatus that's a dead end because at some point we need to organize around actually having an administrative apparatus right and it, it reinforces the sort of either or nature of like you get checks or you get administrative spending. And that's not that's not the way to do it. And a really good example of why this doesn't work often is, for example, like in the UK, if you are disabled, certified disabled by the state, you get disability benefits. Let's say you get a prescription for a wheelchair from the NHS. Instead of um, being provided with durable medical equipment, you get sent um, a card. And then it's your job to seek out and purchase your durable medical equipment that you need. And oftentimes that amount that's on the card doesn't cover the equipment that the doctors prescribed. And it's created this incredible backlog. And all it's really done is that at a certain point, there was a decision that they didn't want responsibility and the negative attention of people waiting for delivery of government wheelchairs. And to get rid of that sort of image problem, they said, you know what we're going to do instead is we're going to give you the money Public, you want. private partnership. To well, not buy, really, your you know. own, yeah. buy your own wheelchair. Whatever wheelchair you want, you have your choice to access your wheelchair and here's your card and here you go. Have well, fun. Yeah, I mean, and what's, a- what's resulted in is that fewer people after they change this have been able to get the durable medical equipment that they need. I mean, it also, I think, sends you down the uh, Andrew Yang future <laughs> yeah, mayor of New say. York path, which is, uh, yeah, let's do can universal basic income and we can, that way we can basically institute welfare reform from the back end by saying, like, and well, it, you can choose... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and, and in, in fairness to you know, UBI supporters, you know, as you're as you're just getting into, 
Andrew Yang's basic income proposal isn't a universal basic income proposal because exactly. you have to choose. I mean, what drives me, you have to choose between getting any other sort of government benefit and getting and getting the basic income check. And which 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 what drives me craziest about that about that in his proposal, not just like how destructive it is and how much it eats at the welfare state. Like, where where did the administrative simplicity thing go? <laughs> I thought we were like sending people checks because we're sending people checks. Now we need a test on the jo- on on the on the basic income side to test to whether you're getting other government benefits before you receive that benefit. That's a pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. And you also need the administrative of those other programs to be checking if that if that person is on the basic income rolls. And you need to keep on rechecking because what if they change their mind? Yeah. <laughs> right. So like. You know, that, that is, is like a nice thing where like the top line thing is administrative simplicity and bottom is like, actually, we're making this much more administratively complicated. Uh, fuck you. Uh, right. well, but that's that's sort of the that's sort of the issue with these with the checks. Right. Is that once once you've sort of like boiled it down and gotten people to like focus their eye on the one bouncing ball, then everything else sort of recedes into the background and then the checks itself can be hived off and then traded off against, you know, it's very, very easy to like make that the, uh, uh, the bargaining point for something like, oh yeah, okay. You want the $2,000 like one-time checks? Fine. Give us some commission that will, uh, reinforce the idea that like the election was massively fraudulent. Like it's very, very easy <laughs> to trade that off if you're bargaining on the terms of, well, okay, I guess under this like limited uh, spending cap, we have to do something that's going to like maximize our level of like political salience. Like that's where that gets you over and over again, right? Yeah, exactly. If you like, if you need political salience per dollar of spending, like maximizing political salience, checks are the most political salient thing you can do within a finite amount of money. If you're limited in your budget and it's inadequate, checks are the thing that you can do that will get you a lot of political salience without actually dealing with any problems. And, and that's ultimately what I'm worried about is that it is, is the po- politics more and more circulating on around how big is the check in this package? How big is the check in this package? Um, and, you know, that does have a danger of of, of, of having worsening problems. You know, you, there's a lot of evictions that can tolerate because the $2,000 check or whatever it is can't cover your rent debt. Um, you can't stop your eviction. Um, but it's okay because there was a, a big check when, you know, actually we could make more progress on, on housing supports, on, on right. money for buying out landlords and such, you know, creating uh, limited equity co-ops and community land trusts and such. And you know there are points where I do think you know, I do think actually you know having some target of targeted money would 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 be a better choice. And is if the package is just larger, if checks are an add-on, then who cares? Mm-hmm. I don't I don't care at all. Mm-hmm. But when money's cut from these other programs, it really it really stings to me as, as you know in terms of like these other things really really mattering. Yeah, I mean, I feel like my my biggest concern here is that within this bill, I don't see anything near the type of spending that we need to like fix the testing problem for universities for example and i think that this is like part of the problem as we keep frame like as you've said nathan it's all about like that sacred cow the number at the top of the bill what is the grand total and it ignores answering the question of like what is actually like okay if universities have to open right <laughs> i'm laughing if universities need to reopen because otherwise you know the workers of tomorrow will lose out 
on a generational advantage in the workplace, then we need to be figuring out how like how much money needs to be spent in order to reopen schools. And I can tell you right now that twenty three billion dollars for higher education is not going to come anywhere close to funding the testing, bare minimum testing required to make this safe. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the other problem with a lot of the way this is funded is you've got like, okay, the fight over the individual check amount is is obviously like really important to people's like immediate individual needs. And it's a very distracting fight. It's a dramatic public narrative. You know, there's full theater going on around this debate. And at the end of the day, the biggest question for me is like, okay, so how are we going to fund the testing that we need? Because there's nothing here for that. So do we need to start talking about the fact that maybe in a lot of ways, rhetorically giving having these checks sort of be the most important thing in the media narrative just reinforces the fact that we're admitting that testing is going to have to partially be on people to pay for themselves, right? Like how do these like different rhetorical framings contribute to the fact that we're just going to continue to not fund the things that absolutely need to be funded to do anything at a bare minimum of safety? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think just coronavirus is just off the table essentially. I mean, I think, I think there's there's (laughs) vaccine money. I, I, like it's COVID related in the sense that oh, like like the way people talk about COVID related is like oh, there's some money for vaccines, and I guess schools are doing something, so throw them some money, and uh, <laughs> um, like uh, some people can't make rent, okay, and like a lot of people are out of work, unemployment <laughs> insurance, uh, they want checks or checks. Uh, all right, I think that's good. Uh, uh, some money for childcare, uh, ten billion dollars for childcare. Uh, like it's this kind of just sort of like random hapdash of things and and thinking in terms of economic related, they're not starting from the standpoint of what do we need to get community spread down, right? Like right, like they're not budgeting their COVID deaths, and you know, like <laughs> I literally I think they would get a we would get a much better bill if they budgeted COVID deaths. Yeah, if, if they, they did went, use the value of statistical life and just multiplied out like what we could get if we yeah. Yeah, no, that right, makes, or even, that or even <laughs> sad, sad that that's where we are. Or even just, or even just, you just said, okay, we want to get COVID deaths down to on average five hundred a day. Um, <laughs> what? How much would we need? Unfortunately, to spend? a very, very tall goal right now. Right. Yeah. What, what? What would we need to spend to get to that? And yeah, that exactly. I would probably get. You know, two and a half times size legislation. So not even directly putting a value in statistical life, but just literally like set a death target. How many should? How many? How many are we accepting? Willing to accept die explicitly, and then fund towards that target. And right. that would probably get you uh, four hundred billion dollars for uh, for for schools. Five hundred billion, probably. Um, probably give you like nine hundred billion or trillion dollars for state and local government aid. Um, mm-hmm. Like I think if you budgeted, if you, if you budgeted in mind with what are all the resources you need to um, get COVID deaths down to five hundred a day, I think we would be talking in terms of like a three hundred, uh, a, a three trillion dollar package. Um, 
like I, I, I think you know I, I haven't like done 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 like a lot of serious work. I'm just you know, I'm just uh, not even back in the envelope. Well, but this is actually here. Yeah. Well, it's telling though because this is never it's never a part of the discussion or yeah. there's never like a any kind of accounting of what the needs are. It's just sort of like okay, well these people went into the room and they had different numbers and like okay, I don't know why they had different numbers, but they're just sort of intractable. They had different numbers for some reason, and then. <laughs> Uh, then, then I have to hear people, uh, in, in the sort of fiscal vulture world who are like, why are you complaining about this bill? Don't you know that there's blank, blank billion in there for blank? <laughs> and I'm like, well, yeah, okay. Okay. Great bully for whatever. But like, is that enough? Have you ever like for all of this sort of people who are like, I aggressively follow the way that Congress spends. It is never in the context of like, I aggressively think about both numerator and denominator. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the Kim, there's people dying approach to figuring out uh, what people actually need. Yeah. <laughs> no. I, and I think that's ultimately like the, the ultimate wrong question. And this is, um, this is what frustrates me the most is that coupled with this sort of uh, fantastical, magical fiction of any day now, the pandemic will be over. This is a really uh, this is going to have a really huge body count. Right. We're seeing 4000 people a day almost right now. And thirty nine hundred yesterday was the I'm sure by the end of today, it'll be you'll crack it. Yeah. If you had told me. If you had told me in March, right, like if future me was sitting with my neurologist in March where I sat down with him and I said, where is this? Like, what's your take? Where do you think this is going to go? And he said, this is going to go two ways. It's either going to be terrifying and it's going to be really difficult or it's going to be fucking brutal. (laughs) And my only hope is that there will be some um, tempering to the brutality that we're going to see because it's already been brutal. And that was only a couple weeks into the pandemic. If, if you, you know, future me walked into that room and goes, Hey, guess what? In December, there's going to be almost 4,000 deaths a day. I don't know if I, I don't know if I would believe that it would have happened that quickly. I don't even think Mm -hmm. in March in my worst imagination, in my most pessimistic, distrustful, uh, imagination, could I have ever assumed that we would do this badly? I think. And the reality is that we have. And part of that is abetted by the fact that we cannot shake this myth that any day now COVID will be over. And that's just not how viruses work. I'm sorry. Like, I'm not trying to be a bummer. I'm just trying to be realistic. And it's really frustrating to not see that reflected in any way, shape or form in the policy prescriptions that are being laid out to deal with this. It's exactly like dealing with a a bad doctor who's like just I don't know, you know, the kind of things that you hear like, oh, people overutilize the emergency room. Like we need to just increase primary care and we're going to do that by um, giving people access to for profit clinics everywhere and and through employee wellness programs. It's the same like horrific, bad response to the wrong question. And it's uh, it's going to just I think it's just going to be like at the end of the day, like come down to these reinforcements of of value through people like our good friend Larry Summers and through this debate over the $2,000 check and who deserves the relief and who's earned the fiscal support and who's earned the right to not be evicted or, you know, not lose their business, etc. And this is a really, you know, this is a really horrific and dangerous exacerbation of like a really bad attitude that we have in this country. And it's just going to get worse and worse. Yeah. I mean, I would say I think 
maybe a little we're a little bit over what my guess was by the end of the year. Like I, I had this sort of gruesome conversation with my dad, and the number I, I, I had at the time was like a little over three hundred thousand. So you know, we, obviously we beat that. Um, but I, I think I think I think this is kind of what I what I was expecting in the sense that like the the state i mean this as, as we've just been hammering over and over and on, you know obviously well this phil has done a lot of work on it like i just you know when when this when the state and local aid wasn't there um i i what else could happen uh really right. um like what 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 other options were were there really i mean this is why i've been so obsessed with with the Fed and in the maximal powers that the Fed could have and seeing that as a political target because it's, you know, the the fiscal side was just missing in action. Yeah, I mean, I think the question is, though, I mean, if COVID becomes endemic, if this is a crisis that doesn't have an acute ending, where are we left in six months time is kind of my question, because I think this is the this is the thing that no one wants to talk about is there's no guarantee that this is going to be um, over as we're imagining it could be. Yeah. But I, guess, I mean, this is again, like the question is o- o- over in what sense and over for whom? Like there's going to be a point, maybe it's in six months, maybe it's in a year. We'll see where COVID is declared over um, where, where it's where people are saying, no, we're, yeah, there's still some remnants, but like, this is over. It's not like what it was. And uh, that point, probably will coincide with thousands of deaths still a day. Yeah. And so like what, what happens in that moment when COVID is over and what about what happens during the time when we're trying to get COVID response at a time when COVID is quote unquote over. Which is why I kind of feel like actually like the real move here for the left is to be pushing for, like, I'm not saying that we, I, I hope that no one gets from our conversation like, oh, that like that these uh, individual checks are bullshit, because I think the real argument is like the same thing that we discussed a couple weeks ago with like the CBO report on Medicare for all, um, that we really have to take this idea of like total cost and um, attack the point that it doesn't matter. Like the total number does not matter. That cannot be our metric. And that the sort of number one goal to me is like, how do we how do we both defeat the arguments from like the Larry Summers, et cetera, that these two thousand dollar checks are too generous to overheat the economy yeah that they'll overheat the economy that like the, what did the wall street journal say that how hot can the economy get <laughs> <laughs> you know how do, how do we like support that um that argument without undermining the argument for the other spending as well like how do we take the total austerity brain cure um as the left and like push back against these like absolutely inane and ignorant um, controls that are just set to reinforce the idea that we're going to have to pick one. Either it's robust central planning and and, and support there, or it's $2,000 checks. I mean, I think more than anything else, it's just the size of the, uh, it's just the overall size of the, of, the, of, of the bills. I think that just has to be the target of the rhetoric. I think that is what has been missing is when they say $900 billion, you say $2.5 uh, and you and, and not just like we think big numbers are good, but specifically these are the needs and we need to, we need to successfully accomplish all these goals. And the money you're talking about is not enough to accomplish all these goals. Um, I think that 
that is fundamentally the approach is 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 the the only way to get to to stop the zero sum fight over one component versus another is to just say the overall thing needs to be bigger. And I think that's the thing that needs to be hammered. And 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 we don't really have a le- a left rhetoric is make the bill bigger. Make the bill bigger. You know, <laughs> the left is so used to just tax the rich or mm-hmm. uh, yeah. just, you know, just cut uh military spending uh, just do this just do that you know we're, we're, we're gonna we're gonna take the budgetary fixes and you know you know you know cut the bad stuff and, and and get in the good stuff we're gonna do efficiency budgeting but with our priorities so it'll be good um mm-hmm. and so we don't really have a rhetoric of you know just spend more money you know you just need to start spending a lot more money and 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 fuck everything else um and and, and a rhetoric around of actually affirming spending more money rather than um, simply talking, which isn't to say, of course, you know, we should cut military spending, but it's a distinct fight from the fight uh, that we need aid. Like, you're not, <laughs> we're, we're not going to suddenly win people over, like, oh, yes, right, we don't need a military in the context of the short term, um, you know, trying to get coronavirus aid. Like, that's a distinct political fight that has to be organized around its own terms and not been done in budgetary terms like you need to make an, a moral case against the military not like not <laughs> argue like it's this luxury we just can't afford right we're gonna do these trade-offs and we'll get this for that right mm-hmm. that's right. And, and and that's and that's the thing that like really strikes me about reading these like negotiations it there's never really a question especially because you know there's all being sort of negotiated in a very centralized way and there's no real access to the process like there's no point at which we're like, yeah, you know, if that doesn't happen, here's what's go- should, what's going to be on your conscience. If you don't spend this, here's what's going to be on your conscience. There's like, there's no traceability uh, chain uh, for a lot of these things. And like, in the absence of sort of a, a more compelling, I think, almost causal story uh, or or like framework uh, for talking about this, then you do just get into like, well. Um, uh, we're not going to get blamed as much for this. So I guess we can like rank this as like number five and then we can just sort of pair that as a thing that we'll ignore with the uh, liability shield that that's really how if you want to know how like state and local aid got got uh, it was because it became uh, yoked to uh, liability in, in these mm-hmm. negotiations is like, well, I guess we'll trade you not doing that for not doing the other thing. Um, and And like. At that point, it's all completely fungible and it's all just a game of like Tetris. It's not um, it's not actually tied to any 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 aspect of how the real world works. Yeah, exactly. All of these trade off discussions ultimately are, you know, fundamentally political in nature. Um, And if you're having if you're if you're, you know, politically tying, let's say something like state and local aid to uh, liability shield Mm -hmm. um, stuff, for example, there's no. how to put it i would like i guess i would like to at the very least see like i don't even expect this of uh of uh the like the quote-unquote left or or anything necessarily but i feel like i would like to at at the very least see some movement towards if you're going to sort of tie these sort of uh like ledger balance sheet things to to each other that don't actually have a, a direct or meaningful relationship to each other i mean you know i think the the military thing is a good example like oh we spend so much on military uh versus x amount on schools like of course we can drop of course we should drop military spending there's no good reason not to in my opinion but then like also there's no reason why 
it you have to present it as a as a trade-off etc whereas for example if you do want to talk trade-offs one thing that you could say is okay and you know this is i'm just going to make a point that like we've made before on this podcast but like okay we're if we're not going to pass uh if, if we're not going to pass state and local aid let's say okay well what's the biggest uh item on the ledger for most states uh, like medicaid spending like healthcare spending right okay so like let's pass medicare for all Done. um easy and but and then say like okay well going forward we're going to have at least this huge part of the balance sheet of uh of each and every state like off of their ledgers um and have a federal program medicare for all to do all healthcare financing like um you know i guess my point is yeah if you're gonna if you're gonna do this like completely arbitrary and often capricious uh like fiscal trade-off or like financialization trade-off uh discussion then like at least make it about something that makes sense that has like an actual causal relationship between it. <laughs> yep. And, uh, you know, I, uh, it's one of the first things I wrote in the newsletters about how Medicare for all is a great fiscal automatic stabilizer. Um, that's true. Uh, I read that the other day and I saw that at the bottom, it said, th- I want to thank my first 14 subscribers. And I just <laughs> smiled to myself like, Oh wow. <laughs> how far we've come. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, I, I obviously agree with that. Like, you know, the other way to skin that cat is to just federalize everything that net is now a component of uh, budgets. You know, like you know, we'll federalize pensions. We'll you know take pensions off of uh, state and local hands and unemployment you know, component, too. Yeah. Component with social security, unemployment. Um, I mean, hey, federalize. Uh, K to twelve education funding, which is you know been, yeah. been the gold star yeah. for many for many you know, for for over a century, almost passed Congress in the eighteen eighties. Uh, um, almost, almost was. I mean, it was a uh, Nixon administration priority in the nineteen seventy two election. They were going to have a VAT. <laughs> wow! Don't you love how so many of Nixon's policies were far to the left of like oh, yeah. Bill Clinton? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, but in fairness. Uh, Part of Nixon federalizing education would have been like mandatory education on how the on how Nixon's plumbers were good. Actually, um, yeah, how the Watergate hotel. It's impossible to break into the Watergate hotel. Uh, it causes way less deaths than the flu. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so no, like, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to the federalize it T-shirt that uh, we'll make for you with just your face yeah. on it, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> um, d- yeah, just disassemble the state and local budget. I mean, even, what, what do state and local governments spend money on? They spend on money on schools. Uh, they spend you know money on on welfare state type stuff uh, because so much of it has been dumped on them. Um, whatever remains of public housing, yeah, like you know, scoop all that. Let's scoop all that up, um, and 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 federalize and take and take it off of, off of off of these budgets. Public library funding, you know, that federal, 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 <laughs> federal, uh, disassembling the, the fiscal federalism through federal funding is 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 definitely one approach to doing that. And I think you know, there's a lot to speak for it, even though it's you know hell to accomplish in, in in the american political world i mean i think just as a floor to that just as like a 
really basic kind of like no no brainer version of that just all of the things that states have to do that are federal requirements <laughs> you know what i mean that are that are not yeah. <laughs> uh, like discretionary spending like everything i mean not that you know not that there's not a lot of uh, stuff that is counted as discretionary spending in state budgets that absolutely should not be counted as discretionary but like the like all of the things that are like constitutional obligations of states yeah Right. I mean, Absolutely. yeah, you, you hear Cuomo complaining about that shit all the time, you know, lighten, lighten his, uh, his burden. No, I mean, I know I'm going to get uh, a couple DMS being like, yeah, but see, the problem is you can't have your cake and eat it too. Um, <laughs> you know, you can <laughs> your cheesecake, if you will, your cheese, which like, I've never really understood that metaphor. Cause isn't the point of having a cake, eating it. it's never made any sense to me i don't know why people have ever started saying it it's bizarre to me i think technically it's brioche too (laughs) anyways i think the original part i mean yeah the metaphor has always made sense to me because cake looks nice and it's nice to look at but you don't want to eat it Hmm. i've never had a cake that was so nice to look at that i didn't also want to eat it you know what I mean? Clearly, like, you're not I watching enough Bake Off. Like Versailles or something yeah. like that. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just don't. Well, like that was cake. a real problem. I just don't like yeah. cake, so the nonsensical part makes sense to me. Well, that's that's fair. <laughs> I mean, but it is it is like a real uh, thing that that we get asked all the time. Is just like, oh, well, you just like got to be more realistic. Like you, you know, you <laughs> crazy hell communist. You just want to like give everybody everything for free, and we just can't do that. It's simply, you know, and not even using like a a deficit hawk argument. Just using the idea that that these types of um, policy interventions that are maybe sound or could work just that that isn't physically possible in the context of our current political economy and that in and of itself is sort of used as this reason not to try well except that like you know us pushing and pushing and pushing i think has made has has made it at least you know more possible this time you know as inadequate Mm -hmm. as all this is you know the big picture is you know excluding the, the the Federal Reserve accounting gimmick bullshit. Um, the Congress <laughs> spent two and a half trillion dollars, or put, put forward two and a half trillion dollars in additional spending uh, this year. That's what they've done. Um, the, you know, you have CARES Act plus this. That's two hundred and fifty billion dollars. Uh, two hundred. That's uh, two and a half trillion dollars. Like that's that's a lot. That's you know that that's a lot, especially for the American f- fiscal system and. Part of the reason is is because of the conversation about you know about deficit politics, which has moved that politics. So like you know there's there's no help in you know the death panel podcast going. Oh well, actually you know <laughs> ninety billion dollars would be nice for this. Like it's not like that makes it any politically more possible. Um, like the larger circumstances and the larger you know policy debate is uh is you know can move things a little bit you know you know not as much as you know the proverbial um sniper rifle in kentucky but uh um nothing to do anything just you know just having one there um (laughs) pure purely proverbial um like but besides that 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 is what you can do a little bit is push the conversation and you know i do think it would be um a big contribution just to be like how much money would it actually take to get not even get down to no coronavirus deaths, get down to 500 a day 
Like, I think that that is a project in and of itself, and like a form of rhetoric that can that can shift things. And I think, frankly, if we had think tanks that put out that kind of crap, that would have moved. That would have yeah. moved things because if 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 you translate the money into a level of coronavirus deaths, you can shame them for their like, you know, you're normalizing four thousand dollars or a budget that's double of this. That's like you're willing to tolerate a thousand dollars, a thousand deaths a day. And that's you shouldn't be willing to tolerate that. I mean, I think I think that's one one of the things is to just, you know, start budgeting the actual outcomes we want rather than budget the dollar amounts. Um, I think I think this is one of the things that makes actually I mean, not to not to like, you know, play devil's advocate or anything. But I think this is one of the things that makes like the the checks discourse so so sort of like uh, politically salient or like salient in the in the public mind, though, uh, overall, because if you think about it, for example, I think that uh, I mean, even, you know, to use the example of like Andrew Yang, whose version of UBI, I'm I'm uh, no no fan of and as you said is like not even really truly a, a manifestation of ubi but uh to you know use the example of uh, of him i remember for example the 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 idea of direct payments to people uh during the 2020 democratic primary was sort of you know looked at as this like cutesy sideshow uh or something <laughs> like that and then after a certain point people did see through the uh through the pandemic and and this being the sort of uh, you know, again, super targeted and ina- inadequate one, one time only like patch fix, basically this like sort of, uh, how to put it like a cork, like cork stuck in the like bleeding bathtub or something. Like sticking your thumb in a, in a hole in a boat as you're sinking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> in the, uh, yeah. In the, I was going to make like a ship of Theseus metaphor, except for all the parts haven't actually been replaced or something like that. It's like a, <laughs> like a pontoon of Theseus, but, um, the, like, uh, how to put it, but you know, so it, as inadequate as a, as that was, basically, it did prove that. Oh well, you know, in, in I think in the imaginary of people, it's like, oh well, the the government can do direct payments, meaning also in my lived experience, like the the sort of arbitrary extremely small amount of money that I get only through like my, you know, shitty paying employer, mm-hmm. right. Is not the, is not, you know, one of the only sources of, of money between like that and like sheer luck or whatever. Um, you know, that, that potentially, uh, the, the very like sort of existence of poverty in America is like a, a political choice, which we have, you know, as, as we know, basically like capitalism can't really exist without a class that it's in poverty but still you know that that does still make it a choice right Mm -hmm. and so i think seeing i guess that is one of the things that is the most interesting to me about this becoming such a forefront in the public debate because uh i would hope that at the very least if people can see that and say oh that is possible right like i got that check or or got that direct payment or whatever i got that direct deposit secured the bag (laughs) sure (laughs) um like that if people can see that uh that that actually happened uh, and you know, I don't, and I don't mean like the difference between the six hundred and the two thousand dollars checks. Just the existence in like March, for example, or uh, in April of this year of like a, of any direct payment at all, right? Uh, like more universal direct payment that you could actually that it potentially could be uh, like leveraged as something to say like, oh well, look at I mean, like just imagine all the other things that could be done. There's no reason to say, oh well, 
that the idea that we can't have, uh, you know, public hospital, like a public national hospital system, for example, is just mm-hmm. because like, oh, we can't have that. We can't afford it or something as though there's not as though there aren't like a ton of unemployed people or a bunch of like uh, sort of like productive capacity of the country, as it were, that is being completely underused. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, we have vaccines going we have vaccines set to like expire at the end of the month that are like not going to get administered right. to people. And we're, right? wa- like, we're wasting it because we don't, we, yeah, we don't believe that it's possible to do any of these sort of large, broad, centrally organized, um, really, you know, probably f- more economically efficient types of planning and infrastructure building. Like the, the whole thing with this like second strain of the coronavirus, which is coming to you know, kill your house and eat your family or whatever. This uh, UK variant that everyone has been talking wow, about. Wow, we should really start taking this coronavirus stuff seriously then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. wow, right. Someone should start thinking about dealing, uh, dealing with that. Like now that it's becoming a real problem. Yeah, no, <laughs> There's a bad coronavirus now. <laughs> yeah, you know, we should, we should start spreading a rumor that this coronavirus um, specifically targets uh, rich people and uh, eating at casinos, even if you have the vaccine, um, <laughs> uh, or maybe this this is this is the institutionally specific one. This really only spreads in schools and uh, you know in universities oh. uh, and uh, in, in prisons, but doesn't really spread in personal gatherings, like in, in like. <laughs> five or ten people <laughs> homes or in their backyard like it, this is the one that only spreads it, it targets the virtuous places well um, you know, the, I, I think that what i heard about this new uk variant is that it actually is really really aggressively virulent in currency so if you're <laughs> if your money gets infected pretty soon like even stuff as stable as the bond market will no, 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 no. if physically if you use physical cash it's okay but it's right. uh, Right. Gotcha. Especially infectious using credit and debit cards and using uh, app payments. Right, right, right. Um, if your credit card is made of metal, then uh, yeah. then you're fucked. <laughs> if you're worried about Joe Biden's tax plan, then this uh, this this is gonna get you. This virus kills securities. <laughs> it spread. It spreads through. It spreads through sur- surveilled social media. But um, <laughs> on the social media, it doesn't spread. Well, and the, but the thing is, is like the reality of this strain, right? The the actual tangible reality of why it's being um, discovered in the UK and why we have not necessarily uh, known about its existence in the US until it was like publicized that all of a sudden, oh my God, there's this strain in the UK that's more transmissible. And, you know, they've been doing all this gene sequencing. And so they've got all this instance of this one, you know, variation of the virus, et cetera. Like that's because they have an NHS <laughs> and the NHS is a coordinated plan system. That's doing a lot of genetic testing. They can yeah. do the gen- genetic testing. They can pool those research resources. They can, you know, it, it, they have an, a pre-existing infrastructure for a place for this data to go, which is one of the biggest problems that we've seen in this pandemic is without something like an NHS, without robust public health departments, the way that we've like ripped and pulled funding out like it's copper pipes and we're stripping the place. Like 
there's nowhere for this data to go, which is why you end up with people like Emily Oster, you know, economist who makes their own COVID dashboard, which becomes one of the most misleading pieces of propaganda trying to fuel the reopening of schools, right? Mm -hmm. Like if we allow, um, like if you leave your door open, you can't be surprised if you have like a rat's nest in your basement. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I I hear what you're saying. We have incomplete markets in data collection and, and analysis, and we just need to complete those markets. You know, we need to put a price on COVID data um, and then start having tradable <laughs> comments of COVID data, and then we'll have sufficient COVID data. So, you know, I, I totally agree with you here. I mean, it's it's totally possible. Um, you know, we're hearing like, okay, there's this case in California, there's this case in Colorado of this UK COVID variant. It's totally possible that this is already all over the United States. Um, this is what a virus does. And we don't have anything to like we don't check the genome of a lot of people's infections we don't know what the cycle threshold value is of of people's viral loads we're just not looking in the u.s and it's because we're spending so much time arguing about like who who deserves any meager fiscal support that we're leaving this like incredibly important scientific and data collection infrastructure just completely like i guess to the hand of the private market at the end of the day um, as we are with the vaccine distribution plan, too. And it's just not I feel like it's not really productive for us to be spending all this time saying like, well, you know, do we need to like get Medicare for all for a floor vote? We need to do some sort of purity test and figure out who's really on our side and who's not, because that's ultimately not the question. Like we need to be talking about Medicare for all in the ways that Medicare for all can provide public health infrastructure. Like who cares about a floor vote? Like I don't give a shit. What I want to hear is like People discussing, like, how can we use these policy tools right now? How would these policy tools be helpful? Not who is on my side and who is not. Well, and people motivating other people to join the fucking cause as opposed to just being like, how do we pressure the people in power to to like register the fact that they already don't agree with us? Right. Exactly. <laughs> right? The floor road stuff is just so weird to me. It's just like, I mean, it just it just seems so irrelevant to what is going on. I mean, we're just so inadequate health funding. We have such an immediate crisis and like there's a sort of like two-sidedness thing like what well, we need Medicare for all right now, which of course is true, but of course we're not going to get it and we're not going to get it through this floor vote. But then like, well, then it's just symbolic. Then it's like, okay, then why, why do I care? Why do I care about this theater? And why do I think it's particularly good theater? Like, you know, do what do I think that people seeing a bunch of podcasters uh, to, uh, like on a people's party pla- like uh, live stream is gonna uh, change <laughs> minds on Medicare for all and, and shift shift energy our way? No, it's just you know it's it's recirculating the same people who already all fundamentally agree on the on the basic point. Well, with with, with the fundamental exception, actually, that in my uh, it's it's. Funny, because actually, if you look at it, if you look, I mean, not to get out, not to get off on a tangent onto like the the force the vote stuff, but like, it's funny because it's actually I feel like it's quite telling and noteworthy uh, to me that some of the most uh, vocal proponents of single pair, um, especially who were like the most active from, let's say, the like the 2016 through 2019, like very recently um, people who are like the most uh, some of the most prominent uh voices on medicare for all are absolutely not on that call <laughs> um yeah if you if you know what i mean and i'm not saying that that means that like uh people have to be i'm not i'm not saying that that means that like y- you know like new people like i think it's good that more people are talking about it i think it's good that like 
more people have apparently very recently decided that they want to, let's say, make themselves voices on it or something like that. I'm not saying that necessarily like, you know, it should just be always the same people or something, but I think it's telling that there's no interest in like, uh, it sort of pretends a little bit as though like they've just discovered like something that like was not politically active like at an all. So instead in of, the desert yeah. contain it's like start, just like trying to start the conversation from the very beginning whereas obvious very obviously like the coronavirus has proven uh over the last year uh much in the same way that it's proven like the the fucking political bankruptcy of like the entire neoliberal project it is like very much proven that like health finance um is something that should be done through a single payer health like medicare for all isn't like an absolute necessity and something that would save like countless uh lives but then on top of it it's like well people are just acting like this like this is all brand new um and right like you know you don't have to agree with the people who went before you but like learning from them could be useful like they might have some they might <laughs> actually have something to tell you about what this fight has been like for the last 10, 20, even 30 years. And you might like be able to learn some lessons about how to do it better from talking to them. You mean disagree with them. You might even think they're really wrong about stuff. And but it's, you, you should engage that. And the, and these are people who are just totally uninterested in that. It's just recirculating yeah. the same sort of basic, you know, low, lowest common denominator narratives, which, you know, have their place, but you know, there is a point where you have to bring it, it further in political strategy and the idea that you know someone who's been trying to get uh, Medicare for all in this country for 30 years is some sellout um, <laughs> is on its face ridiculous. Maybe we could just uh, as, a, as a sort of final topic play think tank for a second and come up with our own back of the napkin coronavirus relief package. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's I mean, obviously, we have to start by uh, putting a dollar figure on it that we uh, adhere to religiously and uh, mm. never veer from. <laughs> Do I hear ten dollars? Uh, <laughs> going I, once. I, 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 my number is. Four point three four trillion, and not a penny less, and not a penny more. <laughs> I, I don't really have a preference on the number as long as there's full PPP uh, loans for the esoteric order of Dagon. Uh, <laughs> we're going to need uh, seven billion dollars for the perverted arts. Um, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At yeah, least, yeah. yeah. Um, also, I think uh, maybe we'll start a new federal fund for like degenerate poetry too. Yeah. That's right. right. Yeah. Like, yeah. um, like a new poetry, only cringe part. poetry though. It can only be cringe poetry. Right. Sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's means tested and the means that is being tested <laughs> is how cringe it is. <laughs> the, 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 the WPA, the WPA federal theater project of the 2020s is just going to be creepy pasta. <laughs> <laughs> we need a, public access television bailout um because we, we need do, we need more of we we need more things in the model of the mclaughlin group um <laughs> we need emergency meme responder core i think that, that is <laughs> yeah. more than anything else i mean vaccines like you know vaccine distribution contact tracing that stuff would be nice but like we you know there there are so many things that have had that have had posts that you know, there was no meme reply at all um and yeah just can't have that and to that to that point i think uh, a bailout of uh of people's uh, struggling only fans because <laughs> uh in these times the first thing that gets cut is the uh, is the porn Dance. budget 
Vince, need... you're going to bail out Bella Thorne, too, when you bail out everyone on OnlyFans. You <laughs> no, have no, no, to no. make we're sure gonna, that you put no, a threshold. Gonna, okay, like, if you we're gonna are... We're going to means tested, obviously. Right, like, you can't, like, you don't qualify for the OnlyFans bailout if you've had more than three major motion pictures. <laughs> right, right, exactly. That's Precisely. a threshold. How, how about, uh, I got it, $800 million uh, for data for progress. <laughs> <laughs> Specifically, I mean, I, mean, I don't know why Sean you're low. I don't know. I don't know why you're lowballing. <laughs> like you know, yeah, that's true. They, I'm, they've done I'm enough. Austerity you know, here. You know, th- th- that's you know that that that's Christian Gillibrand's vote alone should require getting at least a billion dollars <laughs> for. That's that's money that just goes right back into the economy. Yeah. <laughs> just trickles down your leg, nice and warm. Oh man! Oh, well, sorry. all right, we solved it. All right, I think we fixed the fiscal crisis. Depression averted. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Um, everything's gonna be fine. We'll reopen tomorrow. Good to go. Because most importantly, you know, um, everybody's secured the bag. We're gonna get our six hundred dollar checks, and things will be right. fine. That was what this was all about, right? That was the. There was nothing else, right? There was no other. There was there was no other underlying uh, health crisis, was there? No I wanted to know at exactly what temperature. The economy overheats and all the vaccines spoil. (laughs) (laughs) Which I don't think that we totally got to, but you know, I think in the edges of the conversation. You know, seriously, on on that point, at some point, I'll come back and talk about overheating because that, as a metaphor for you know things going on in the economy, is a like has a very interesting origin story, and like is 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 I think more recent than people realize or like i guess hmm. it depends what what people's conceptualization of recent is but and i think it's 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 kind of this like preceding moment uh in like neil like before the neoliberal fiscal history took over oh shit uh, well now i'm really curious can you yeah, walk now us that's really, really fast? <laughs> i like a tantalizing cliffhanger yeah <laughs> oh damn we'll have to have you back <laughs> oh no 2021 oh, no. an obscure we have to hang a- out 2021 and an obscure uh, fiscal uh, uh, monetary metaphors. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we can officially change it from overheating to overclocking the economy. Um, oh, yeah. And figure out how to do that. Is that a, that's like a video that's a, game that's thing. That's a PC it's a, thing. It's okay. a, yeah, right. it's a um, PC gaming chat. Sure. That was awesome, Marty. Thank you. <laughs> no, but I, I think it does. This is all really important to consider, especially tying back into what you said in the very beginning, Nathan, which is that what we are seeing in real time is the decoupling of like health outcomes and the pandemic. And it's really just important to consider the whole picture without all of the noise and bullshit, because this is that's what we're seeing. You know, the health outcomes are not at all being calculated, considered, prescribed to, uh, budgeted, etc., and I feel like that's really what we have to push for in the coming weeks. Yeah. Nathan, it's been great having you on. Um, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me at nathantankus.substack.com. Uh, notes on the crises. Uh, the, the, the death panel uh, link always works. But uh, right now I'm doing half off on annual subscriptions uh, to January 15th. You can come to check, subscribe, or, you know... Uh, read for free you know still have a ton of free uh free content out there as well and uh highly recommend you can catch me on bloomberg tv 
or and on <laughs> every time yeah. every time a Bloomberg social media site reposts the profile of me from July, uh, which is you know, like uh, seem- seemingly every month or so for uh, in the future. That's my basic income. <laughs> <laughs> People got to know. Hey, I mean, you do a fantastic job. In all honesty, all joking yeah, about Bloomberg your subsect, like made my year. I've understood mm-hmm. many oh, things so yeah. much more clearly. Sorely needed in that. terms of communicating. You know, I mean, I feel like the the more that it, I'm happy to find an economist that I uh, actually like because while there are a couple now, uh, for the most part, I have just come to think that most of your profession is cops. So well, I'm, I'm blessedly uh, uncredentialed. So I get to avoid being an economist. Right. Uh, all that, you know, yeah. as, I, as I joke with people, Careful. I'm like, I'm going to get my PhD in law and when the and when the mobs come for the economists and lawyers, I'm going to be able to go, uh, well, technically, I'm not an economist or a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) And then I'm going to get shot. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Nathan, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure as Mm -hmm. always. Um, It's the it's the last day of the year. Should we should we announce the book? Yeah, I guess we could. I want to. I want to preface this by by saying uh, that uh, how to put one, one of the people on on this call, Phil Rocco, has multiple books that are all good reads that you should definitely uh, like pick up uh, first for select audiences only. Well, I was just say I really enjoyed <laughs> right, yeah. reading Phil's Obamacare book, and it made me super intimidated to talk to him for the first time. Let me just put it this way: if it's you it's really good though. If uh, it is, a, it is a very good book. Let me just put it this way: if you like listening to our podcasts, and then you you're really into like. Uh, something that's a really interesting conversation that we're having and I make a stupid comment about gaming and you're like god damn it why like that that thread never got picked up Please, <laughs> you need to read Phil's books yeah but yeah. <laughs> um the, or anything else he's written uh but but uh no to be to be serious I just wanted to announce I don't think we're just not going to say anything about this for a long time um but um B and I are working on a book because we can't get married so this yeah, is the next best it's better, thing. It's better than that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, B and I are working on a book. Um, it's tentatively going to be for 2022 um, for Fall Verso. 22, yeah. Um, Health and, communism. Yeah, and the title is Health Communism, um, and we are going to. We're it's gonna, about how to have your cake and eat it too. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. The ultimate um, guide. <laughs> no, but we're we're uh, we're very excited i think if you're a long-time listener you can kind of imagine uh where the what the book is going to be getting at um based on the title alone um but i just wanted to make sure that we sort of announced it because i think we won't be talking about it for a while um but we want people to know that like thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts for um sticking with us especially through this insane um year um we like we like it's been a really incredible ride i'd say for like all four of us and it's certainly been an incredible ride for nathan separately yeah. <laughs> um, very true but um yeah i just wanted to sort of like l- make sure that we let everyone know before we stop talking about it again basically but let everyone know that that's like in the in the future that's that's happening and so. also like you know we'll we'll see what happens right over the next year it's a really interesting time to be writing about this stuff because everything changes seemingly pretty quickly (laughs) yep so um, i'll just say it's about a lot more than medicare for all basically yes yes Mm -hmm. for sure i think um with that we'll just end it there we won't say anything more for probably eight or nine months yeah but uh but thanks again nathan 
Nathan. You're the best. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Hell yeah. How lang syne. <laughs> <laughs>
2020 is over please make it stop i don't know (laughs) oh you think 2020 is over but the joke is it's (laughs) long 2020 so 2020 (laughs) is uh just in its early stretch keep on happening 2020's got legs oh yeah people do act like somehow the the uh georgian calendar is like a law of nature instead of admitting (laughs) that like months and days and years are arbitrary and we've just sort of decided that New Year's is a uh, watershed moment when your life changes. Right. 